Okay, we started a few weeks ago a series through the book of Ezra. Um, in quick, short summary, uh, I'll explain what the book of Ezra is about, and then I'll pray. Uh, Ezra really is a story of about a group of people, the Jewish people, that were taken away into uh, exile, uh, captivity, into a very, very far away land called Babylon, um, several hundred miles away, almost 550-some miles away, about a four-month journey uh, on foot. And so about, for about 70 years, they lived in exile. The reason why they were taken away to exile is because it was a part of a judgment of God. Uh, God told the children of Israel, live in such a way in which you love me, serve me, honor me, respect me, follow my law. Uh, the children of Israel as a nation didn't. There was a remnant of people that periodically did. There were a handful of prophets that loved God and were always trying to work overtime, didn't get paid for it, just to make sure that everybody knew how important it was to keep on track with God, yet their voices were silenced because most of them were killed. And so therefore what had happened was God raised up a leader, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a Babylonian king, and he had taken the children of Israel off into exile, and there in exile they were for 70 years. So, sort of at the uh, expiration of 70 years, God moved again and opened up doors to the children of Israel to leave Babylon to go back into the land of Canaan. So, again, you got to picture it this way. Most of these people that are going to be returning have either never been to Israel or they're really old, right? Or they're really old. So, they've never been to Israel, meaning they're young people, maybe your age, maybe, you know, in their mid-30s got young families, or they're really old, like 85, all right? That's probably why it took four months to get there, because they had to go slow. And uh, so what had happened was, when they came back to the land, they came back into the land as refugees. Uh, we're told that the number of them was close to around 50,000 people. So imagine 50,000 people displaced, not having any homes, not having really any hopes of a home, not having any jobs, coming back into a land that's been decimated, destroyed, laid to dust. All that really remains are nothing but a bunch of ruins. Um, and now 50,000 people are going to try to find homes in, that, in the ruins of uh, the leftovers of what once was Jerusalem, what once was the temple, and what once was their uh, national government place. So 50,000 people returning, not much is there. That's basically what's happening. But the reason why they returned is because they felt a call from God that God had called them to go back into the land of Jerusalem to basically start a brand new life to build the temple. The temple was so important, so symbolic uh, of, a, of, a, of a piece of architecture, of a building, it symbolized for the whole entire world, not least of which were the Jews, this sort of intersection between heaven and earth. It was a place where heaven and earth collided. If you asked any Jew back in that day how significant was the temple, they would tell you it's very significant. It's the place where we meet God. It's a place where God shows up. It's a place where God comes. It's a place where God communes. It's a place where God forgives us our sins. It's a place where God cleanses us and washes us, and renews us, and commissions us. It's a place where God's glory is seen. They had a word for this. It's called the Shekinah. It was the cloud of God, the weightiness of God. It was, it was all of these things sort of summarized in the building. And, and at this particular point, the building lay in ruins. So children of Israel said, listen, or a segment of the children of Israel, there could have been upwards of 1 million to 2 million Jews in Babylon at this time of 70 years uh, had, had taken place. And so now, when you think of only 50,000 leaving Babylon to come in, it was a very, very small minority of people returning back into the land of Jerusalem to pick up this work, to start this work, to reestablish the temple, to build it so that God, who is great, could be seen at the intersection of the world. Um, Jerusalem sort of stood, uh, uh, stood right in the middle of all of the ancient uh, major trading routes of the ancient world. Uh, for example, 
If you look at it on a map, you look at Jerusalem, there's a major uh, highway or uh, road that had gone all the way through Jerusalem, attaching roads all the way to the east as far as India, going down into Egypt, which would have been Africa, going up into Europe, all the way through uh, Antioch and some of the other regions uh, through Turkey. And so Jerusalem really sort of stood right at the very center of this entire ancient economic trade route. And God strategically stood, uh, uh, placed His people. I know my body's not capable of making noises like that. I don't think. And uh, so anyways, hopefully that won't happen again. Well, there we go. Is that it? Sir. Alright. Okay. God strategically uh, places people there because He knew that that was going to be the location where people would do trading, where people would interact, where people would talk. And the whole point of this was God says, I want the world to see how great I am. I want the world to see that I'm a treasure. I want the world to see that I'm the greatest treasure that anybody can live for. And the way that this would have been uh, made tangible is through a group of people, the people of Israel, the Jews, who would say, I will live according to the ways of God. So God's intention from the beginning was that they would be this community that loves one another, that serves one another, that takes care of one another, that helps people. So if someone's hurting, and if there's a widow that's going through a hard time, then the community would come together and say, we're going to rally to help the widow out. You know, if, if somebody is... Uh, if kids have been orphaned, that the community would come together and say, we're going to help this family out. We're going to help these kids out. We're going to take care of one another because we love one another, but predominantly, predominantly we love God. And the way that we demonstrate our love for God is by loving what God loves. Okay? Does that make sense? So this group of 50,000 people returning from Babylon as refugees to an area that's probably was not that much unlike uh, New Orleans after the flooding, totally destroyed, totally decimated. Nobody had a house, nobody had a job, nobody had a place to live, but they knew they were coming back to a place that was going to be difficult, was going to require a lot of sacrifices. So you might ask, why did they do that? The main reason why they did that is because they believed that the weight, the glory, the goodness, the greatness of God was worth it all. To establish the emblem to establish the building that spoke up, that communicated about God. They said, it's, it's, it's all worth it. We will give up whatever we got to do to make certain that the temple is rebuilt so that God's name will be seen throughout the area. That's what's happening in Ezra. The reason why I love this book, the reason why I feel really excited about going through this book right now as a church, because bottom line, that's the type of church I want to be. I want to be a group of people that recognizes that church, being the body, being the church, being a Christian, is not about somehow just sort of the social mentality of getting together, hanging out on a Sunday, living a certain lifestyle, singing a few songs, doing a couple things, and bailing, and never having any interaction with anybody else throughout the week, never really having any true love for one another, but really we just sort of live this thing. We call Christianity. Rather, to say, let's live for something bigger. Let's put our hands to something greater. Let's put our hearts and our hopes towards something. We might not have much promise out of it for ourselves. There might be sacrifice that we find ourselves engaged in. There might be areas where there's a lot of lacking uh, comforts, just like the children of Israel did and had. But to be able to say the, the glory of God, the goodness of God, is worthwhile. To say, let's join this mission. Let's live in such a way so that God can be seen. That's why I've been trying to communicate over the past few weeks. This whole concept of what's being communicated through Ezra is these were a bunch of people living on mission. That is exactly, I believe, the way that the church should be living. The mentality the church ought to have is we live on mission our goal in life is not to just go hang out on a Sunday morning in uncomfortable chairs, but our goal is so that as we gather, we hear God, we meet God, God changes us, God speaks to us, we're transformed by God, 
and that we go from here to communicate to the world how great our God is. Not just verbally. Not just by going around telling people, you know, four spiritual laws, or not just by going out by rehearsing some script, but by actually loving people. Do you know that we can go around and just throw down some script? I mean, you know, we can talk with people, witness with people, share the gospel to people, and all we simply have is some rehearsed script. It's just like, I learned how to communicate the gospel. And if that's all you can do is sit down with somebody and just open your mouth and say a few words, but there's no love there, do you think people can see through that? I mean, do you really think people are that dumb? They're like, oh, I can tell you don't really like me. You just want me to pray a prayer. I'd be happy to do that for you. Like, nobody's like that. But the world does see people that are genuine. and Just say, you know, I don't really know much to say. If I can be really frank, I'm pretty dang just nervous. But I love you. And I can tell that you're going in a direction that's just not God's best really doesn't even involve God in your life. And if you continue on that path, not only will your life be destroyed, but you will go to hell. And I love you enough. I don't want to see you go there. I don't even really know how to say I'm not really good at my words, but I just want you to know how good God is. That's what people respond, is this honest sincerity of like, I'm not all polished, but I just, I want you to see the glory of God. I want you to see that God's a good God. And He's here. It's the type of church I want to be. It just says we are on mission for the purpose of seeing people come to know Christ. That's where Ezra's going. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to work uh, as we read through the chapter, kind of make some observations, and we'll wrap things up here with some worship. But I'm going to pray right now. Let's get to work. Uh, Father, we just want to give you thanks for this morning. We thank you that your word uh, brings illumination to our hearts. It opens our eyes. It convicts us. It changes us. It shows us really in so many ways how far off we are. And God, we want to be made right with you. We want to be made right in relationships. We want to live, God, this life that you call us to live. Not just talk about it. Not just memorize some scriptures about it. Not just simply be a part and be around a bunch of people that have it. But Lord, we want this life that changes things. Help us, we pray, God. We give you this morning. We just ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Ezra chapter 3 is where we're picking up here this morning. So if you guys grab your Bibles, verse 1 says this. When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. So these people had lived. Remember, they had kind of come to Jerusalem. There wasn't that much there in Jerusalem. It was a town that was destroyed, completely wiped out. Again, like I said, not much different than like New Orleans or New York City right after 9-11. Just destruction. These guys had nothing of promise guaranteed to them when they left Babylon. you got to picture this. In Babylon, they had pretty good lives. Uh, some of the uh, archaeological digs that they've discovered, they found pretty significant Jewish, Jewish civilizations that were established there. They, they were able to, to do pretty well in Babylon. But there was a segment of people that says, we're going to leave it, we're going to go to Jerusalem because we really believe the glory of God is worth it. We really believe that God in and of Himself is a treasure. And we want the world to know our God. So they go in, and uh, we're told at the very last verse of chapter 2, it says this, and then the temple servants, they lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So what had happened, so these people, as soon as they get there, you can imagine, they need to figure out a place to live. So if you were to look at it on sort of an aerial view, you would see Jerusalem kind of in the center. Jerusalem's kind of in an upper area geographically on the map. It's high. So anytime you're reading your Bible, it says, you know, they're, they're always going up to Jerusalem. I mean, they might be in the north part of the country, and if they're going to go to Jerusalem, you'll always read, they went up to Jerusalem. It's because Jerusalem's up in elevation. So what happens is all these people, kind of on an aerial perspective, you would see all these tents sort of around the city of Jerusalem, around all of these ruins of the city of Jerusalem. And what had happened, we're told that on the seventh month, all of the children of Israel came together from their towns, and they were gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. So all 50,000 plus people, I would imagine there's maybe more, maybe less, people died, some kids were born, you can imagine, seven months goes by, a lot can happen. 
And so what happens is they all gather together as one man. They're all united in the city of Jerusalem. We're told in verse 2, Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and his kinsmen, and they built an altar of God, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it as it was written in the law. So the very first thing that these people do together as a united group, very first thing, they say, we're going to worship. We've got to worship God. The way that they did this back in those days was very significant. It was important. Uh, they worshiped God by establishing or building an altar. Now the altar up to that point, in fact, we're told, uh, according to Joshua, there's hints that there was already an altar that was replaced there. So when the temple was destroyed some 70 years earlier, immediately on its ruins, there were some other sort of like tribal people in that area, probably like Samaritans, who came into Jerusalem. They built sort of this little altar. It was, it was kind of false goddish, false god worship. They worshiped these uh, false gods there. But there was still an altar there. It's still broken. So in other words, even though there might have still been worship going on there, it was not the worship of the true and living God. It was worshiping lesser gods, lesser things. So the first thing they do when they come back together as one man, seven months into this whole entire mission, is they say, the first thing we got to do as a group, before we even throw one stone on top of a foundation, before we even do anything, we got to worship. The way that we do that, we build an altar. So they erected this altar. So think in your minds, either stones, stacking stones on top of another. There's all sorts of different ways in which they would have built this altar. But they built this altar. And upon this altar, we're told that they began to offer these sacrifices to God. It goes on, it says this, and they built upon the, they built, uh, the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In verse 3 it says, And then they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands, for they offered burnt offerings to it, on it to the Lord. So I want you to check this out. Here's what's happening. Um, they get together. After seven months, there is one big group. They said, we've got to worship God. Let's build an altar. So they built an altar. At the same time, what I love about Ezra communicating to us in this book is he's essentially saying all these people were afraid. This was not like a group of heroes with like capes. You know, I mean, these were everyday, regular people, just like you and I. There's nothing super great about these people. They were just regular people that just heard the call of God, that just simply says, God will go. We don't know where we're headed. We don't know what lay ahead of us. We, don't, we know that we don't have any promise of big houses, fancy cars. There's no welcoming party. There's no home-cooked meal that we're going to walk into. We don't even know where our kids are going to lay their heads at night. You know, Grandma and Grandpa might even die in the trek, but we're just going to go anyhow. They just went. Regular people. And I love the fact that Texas simply tells us they were afraid. They were afraid for their lives. They were afraid for the lives of their children. They were afraid for the lives of their grandmas and grandpas because they had no idea what to expect from the surrounding tribal people in the region. What I love about this is because what it shows me is that regular people who are full of fears can do great things. If I were to ask you, you know, to do something for the church, I'm just like, listen, we need somebody to like mop the floors. All right, I just think of something hypothetical. I know James just kind of threw this down, but I'll just throw this down. Hypothetical. Let's say we need someone to mop the floors. All right, like we have a need. Here's a need. All right. You know, it's, what's, what's, what's amazing to me is some people would be like, ah, I'm not going to, I can't help. I don't have any means, ability, whatever. Now, if I were to say, we're offering $100 an hour to mop the floors. It's amazing. How many people would be like, ah, praise the Lord, you know, my schedule just opened up. You know? It's awesome. But the bottom line is this, is that if you were to push that concept even further, to be like, what if you saw somebody that was in great need, and you knew that if by helping them, because KSBY is right there, if you walked up and you helped the guy, you knew that you had a pretty good chance of maybe getting your mug on the 6 o'clock news. Right, getting an interview. Like, All right, I'm Tony Capolo, and I'm here today with, you know, and they talk to you. They're like, that's me, Mom. Right, I'm on TV. Like there's some sort of award for you right there. 
And you know you're walking into something that could be like insta-fate. A lot of us would jump on that. That'd be sweet. Everyone's going to know what type of a servant I am. This is awesome. But what about if you saw somebody, just some old dude sitting at a bar stool in a restaurant, didn't know Jesus whatsoever, and you had the opportunity, God whispers in your heart, go share the gospel with that person. No one's going to notice it. You're going to be afraid. The guy's going to yell at you. Would you do it? I mean, the reality is, a lot of times we just don't. We do stuff motivated by some sort of hope of return. But seldomly do we make radical sacrifices, modifications with our life to say, you know what, there's a person that's in need, I will do whatever I can, and I I probably won't get anything for it. No one will recognize, no one will know that I'm doing it, no one will pay attention, no one will even thank me. Because oftentimes in our hearts, we're just like, I'm afraid. If I were to ask you, why don't you share your faith more? Like, why, why don't we stand up for righteousness more often? Right? I mean, why? Why is it that when we see somebody maybe hurting, seldom do we go out of our way to say, I'm going to share the gospel with them? Because oftentimes, I think we're honest, we're just afraid. I'm afraid. I get afraid. And sometimes I think, you know, if I go out of my way to talk to somebody, they're going to think I'm, re- well, I'm they're going to think I'm one of those really weird right wing nut jobs, right? That's just an evangelical crazed Christian, right? They might get a bad idea about me. I don't want that. I don't want people to think bad about me. So oftentimes, out of fear, I bypass opportunities simply because I'm afraid. And the reality is, is, I think most of us are just afraid. We're just afraid. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of how we'll be treated. We're, we're afraid that our name will be made fun of. We're afraid that someone's going to think bad about us. You know, here's another good one. Um, if we know somebody who's living in sin, we know something about their life that's just not right. They're doing something they know we know is damaging to them. How many of us would go out of our way to say, I got to sit down with them and talk to them? Sometimes we don't because you know what we're afraid of? We're afraid of messing up the relationship. We're afraid like I'm going to lose a friend. I mean, if, I think if we keep pressing this, we'll realize that so oftentimes the things that we do what we do and the things that we don't do that we should do are often as motivated by fear. Because the reality is, is that these people in Ezra's time, they were afraid. They were afraid. They were just like you and I. They're people just like you and I that struggled, that dealt with these really powerful fears that can paralyze you and keep you from doing great things that God calls us to do. But I love the fact that in spite of the fears, they said, you know what, we've got to build an altar. We've got to worship our God. We've got to exalt Him. We've got to fear Him more than anybody else. Paul the Apostle put it this way. Jesus would actually as well. This idea of, don't fear the ones that can kill you. Rather fear him who can put your soul in hell. Do you know that the early church lived this concept out? Last night, I was, uh, my wife is out hanging out with a bunch of gals and my oldest daughter, Brianna, she's at a youth camp up at Hume Lake right now. And my youngest daughter did a sleepover last night. And I was at home by myself. I was just, you know, and I, I honestly, I like being home alone. I just, I just love time alone. I'm, I can be a loner, all right? And, and I love, I don't get times like that very often, but last night I was just like, okay, Lord, I got all this time. What should I do with my time tonight? And I'm like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think a good usage of this large chunk of time would be well spent every 15 minutes updating my Facebook profile. So I'm just, Jesus, what, what would you want me to do with my time? Like, how do you want me to spend it in a way that's just going to be meaningful and have some substance to it? And, and so I just, I just felt like the Lord spoke to me, just read the book of Acts. So I sat down. I made a really good, strong cup of Turkish coffee. Mmm. And I sat down, and I just, I, and I'm not kidding, I didn't go to sleep till really late, so that, that was like around 
5.30, and it just kept me going for a very long time. So I sat down, and I just read the book of Acts. One thing that just blew my mind, come back to this later, but one of the things that blew my mind, this whole concept of fears, got a guy like Stephen, he's a young guy. He's a guy that basically felt the call from God to stand up for righteousness, and here he is preaching the gospel to the very same group of people called the Sanhedrin, who just a few months earlier put Jesus to death, and he's preaching to these guys with unbelievable boldness. Right? As he's communicating, as he's speaking to them, as he's proclaiming to them the gospel. And he's doing this masterful job of this Old Testament, you know, exposition of the text. And all of a sudden, he kind of turns everything. He's like, listen, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, and you killed Jesus. Alright? That's not a good way to make friends. But what happens is, these guys immediately take Stephen, they drag him out of the place where he's at, they take him outside of the city, dragging him on the ground. And they pick up stones and they begin to throw them down upon Stephen. But just before Stephen dies, he looks up into heaven, somehow the one who wrote the text here says that, that Stephen looked up into heaven and he saw the face of Jesus, the Son of God at the right hand of God. And something about that glimpse that Stephen had of Jesus was able to satisfy his soul in such a way that would say, no amount of brick or a boulder hitting my body even compares to the beauty and the glory of Son in Christ that I'm going to soon see. That's the way these guys lived. Something about the sense of like, Jesus, you are so good. So beautiful. So glorious. Doesn't matter what comes my way. Doesn't matter what type of affliction or pain or infliction of pain that might come upon me. Nothing. Nothing compares to the beauty that's found in you. Guys, the New Testament's full of concepts like this. Paul talks about it. He says, suffering in the same ways that Christ suffered. You know the way that we as Christians suffer today? We suffer, that's how is it, alright? We suffer by having to drink bad coffee at churches. We suffer because the sermon's too long. We call that suffering. We suffer because it's too hot, it's too cold in church. We suffer because the chairs are too stiff. We suffer because we don't have enough money, because we can't buy that second television for our house. We suffer because, you know, it's just like, we go, on and on and on. And somehow, somehow our standards have gotten very, very far away from Acts. Very far away. And as I look at this, I just realize these are a bunch of people that were fearful. But they said, you know what? In spite of it, we've got to lay the foundation. We've got to worship God. We've got to build this altar. We've got to establish a precedent that He's greater than all the suffering that we're going to face, all the tribulation that might come, all the hardship that might take place around us. We've just got to set this issue aright in our soul. Guys, I want you to think about that. What is most significant, most important to you in your life? What is it? I mean, the bottom line is, is oftentimes we think it's God, but I think we really trick ourselves. I think more often than not, we just fool ourselves. We think it's God. We say it's God. But in reality, it's not. Because here's, here's the subtlety. Here's the way this works. We, we say things like this. We're like, I'll go to church. I'll pray. I'll hang out with God. I'll hang out with Christians. I'll endure prayer meeting. Or whatever. As long as God allows me to get married to a good Christian spouse. Or as long as God you know, gives me a child, or as long as God helps me to hold on to my house by being able to make my mortgage this month, I'll do it as long as God does this for me. And really what happens is God ends up becoming this means to an end, not the end. I, I wish I can tell you that if you follow Christ, your life would get better. I wish I can tell you that. But that's not the gospel. Okay? 
the, the reality is, we follow Christ because Christ is the treasure. He is the reward. Because the reward for serving God is not slaps on the back by the pastor. Great job. Thank you. I was noticed. You know, the reward for serving God is not getting a paycheck from the church. I'm on staff now. The reward for serving God is not somehow, you know, becoming popular or having people recognize. The reward for serving God is God. He's the reward. And here's what was happening here in Ezra's days that these guys realized we don't have much that's going to be coming towards us. In fact, if anything, we're all going to be paying big prices by our families, by our lifestyles, by our sacrifices. But what's more important is God. It's God. The reality is, is that sometimes by serving God, things might not get better. God might not heal the cancer. You might die. But I'll tell you what, that's when things really get better. Your marriage might not change. You might not pass school. You might lose your job. Sometimes God allows these things. and He says, this is what's going to happen. Because God says, I don't want you using me as a means to your real God. I want to be your real God. And these people recognize the most important thing. Aside from being afraid, aside from all the sacrifices they had already made, that we've got to worship God in the midst of this. We've got to build this altar. Take a look at about verse 3. It says, And they set the altar in its place, for the fear of them was on them because of the people of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the Feast of Booths, this was a special feast. That was a great feast. It was one of the main feasts that they did. Um, what they would typically do is a feast in which they remembered uh, coming out of the land of Egypt. So what they would do, I mean, I think most adults probably weren't too into it, but all the kids were into it. They would actually take tents and go in their backyard and sleep outside in tents like for this whole week. You know, they'd be like, let's remember what our forefathers did when they were in the wilderness. So they would sleep outside in tents and they'd do their thing. And so this is the first time they've done this uh, in this generation. As it is written, they did this according to the word. Um, offering, daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and, all, and after all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who had made a free will offering to the Lord, from the first day to the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. So what I want you to notice is, uh, immediately following the building or the reconstruction of this altar, they began to offer these burnt offerings. In fact, there's four of them that are actually mentioned, the first of which is the daily offerings. This would have been basically the daily uh, routine of bringing these offerings to God. The priest would have offered these. Another one would have been the regular offerings, which is immediately after that particular one. These would have been you know, the people daily. They would just bring their daily offerings to God on a regular basis. Uh, the next one, kind of in the... Uh, Procession, it goes on, it says, uh, the new moon and feast offerings. So, what this is an indication of is that for the past uh, 70 plus years, they had not been celebrating the feast days. They had been celebrating Passover. They had been celebrating um, uh, Yom Kippur or the Feast of Tabernacles that they're celebrating right now. So, for the past 70 years, none of these dedicated feast days that God had asked His people to celebrate they weren't celebrating these things. So in other words, if you want to put it this way, for the past you know, years of their lives, they weren't obeying God. They were just doing their thing. They had been totally inundated with Babylon. All right. Now, interesting enough, Babylon, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, becomes sort of this metaphor of everything that's great in life. All right? that's, what, that's what Babylon becomes this metaphor. Babylon becomes sort of this metaphor... Um, of everything that's part of this world system, right? The way that we think, the way that we process information, the way that we, uh, you know, gather information, the way that we disperse information, the way that we uh, consider information. All of this stuff is really sort of summarized in this worldview concept of Babylon. And so, the children of Israel were actually living in Babylon. 
They were part of this system. It was a very strong economic empire. A lot of great things to, you know, to be had there in Babylon. They had built great businesses there. According to a lot of the archaeology, they've discovered, you know, ancient areas, parts of towns, um, in the ancient city of Babylon that had Hebrew sections, Jewish sections. It was actually believed that once the Jews came to Babylon, they really flourished. I mean, these weren't just a bunch of people that kind of moved into Babylon, just sort of survived, kind of like hung out and just sort of barely made it, lived in slums. Actually, quite to the contrary, when they moved into Babylon, they started businesses, they became very prosperous. Um, a lot of great things had happened. Commerce, they became very rich, very wealthy. In fact, um, even though there was no temple in Babylon, it was believed in Babylon is where the whole... Um, synagogue system began, right? I mean, Jews today meet not in temples, they meet in synagogues, right? When you drive around town, I think there's at least two synagogues that I know of in Slope. Alright? All of that began in Babylon. It was because they were so far away from home, Jerusalem, they wanted, to, they wanted at least to have some remnant of connection with God, and because the temple was no longer at their disposal, they didn't have um, sacrifices to offer to God, Really, they had no means to worship God. So what they did is, while they were in exile, they developed sort of the system of gathering together in a building, hearing the Bible taught. You know, they would have a priest or some sort of a Levite get up there, open a scroll, read the scroll, talk about the scroll. They'd pray, they'd sing a few songs, and they'd bail. That was kind of how they were sustained. However, during that period of time... There's no record whatsoever of them keeping any of the specified feast days or laws of God. So in other words, for the past 70 years plus, they've been living in disobedience. Now they come back to the land and they're basically saying, we've got to make everything right. The way that everything gets made right is we build an altar. We start with worship. We start with changing how we worship. The way that we think about worship. And they begin to offer all these offerings to God. Verse 6, it says this, And from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Okay? What I want you to notice real quick, and so you can kind of put it this way in three basic you know, summaries of that first few sections. Uh, first of all, they had this priority of worship. The very first, the most important thing for them when they moved back into the land was worship. It's like this is their priority. There's nothing else we got to do. There's nothing else that's more important. They didn't jump start into building the temple. You know, they immediately, as soon as they were capable, they says, we've got to build an altar. This was a priority to them. Guys, I want you to think about this. I've been saying this over the past several months. The reality, the reality for all humanity is that we're all worshipers. Okay? All of us. And you might be here today and you might be like, I ain't a Christian. Like, that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but we're glad you're here. But the reality is is that you worship still. Even though you might not worship Jesus, you still worship. We are all worshipers. See, the default mode of our lives is not worshiping the true and living God. The default mode of our life, when we are not worshiping God, here's what happens. We find substitutes. We worship other things. We bend our knee to other things. We devote our time to other things. We give our money to other things. We love other things. And that's worship. Worship is whatever it is that we ascribe ultimate, infinite value and worth to. So if you're here today and you're saying, I, I'm not a Christian, I don't love Jesus, and I'm not a worshiper, I'm atheist, I'm agnostic, whatever the case is, the reality is, if you get away from that veneer, Beneath all of that, you are still a worshiper. You might worship cars, music, your intelligence. We're all worshipers. So the priority of these guys was to say, listen, we need to make sure that our worship is upon the living God. We've got to build an altar and reestablish the worship to the one true living God. So they built this huge altar and they began to bring these sacrifices and offerings to God saying, God, we're back. God, forgive us. God, cleanse us. God, wash us. 
everything began at the altar. Throughout the history of the people of Israel, this is where everything changes. All right, I'll give you a couple of examples. Elisha. All right, not Elisha, Elijah. Elijah was one of the prophets. He was one of the greatest prophets of all of Israel. He's confronting this huge group of prophets of this god called Baal. All right, and while he's confronting these people, uh, they're having this kind of uh, argument back and forth. You know, which god is greater? The prophets of Baal are like, our god is greater. Elijah is like, our, my god is greatest. You know, and they're like going back and forth. And the first thing in that story that Elijah does is he actually reconstructs the altar that had been broken down. He says, well, we'll see. Whichever God answers by fire, whichever God, whichever, whoever God actually brings fire down from the heavens and consumes the sacrifice that's upon the altar, that's the true and living God. And sure enough, that was where the great revival, great move of God began. Another example, the very first time the word altar actually appears in the entire Bible is in, found in the book of Genesis chapter 8. Uh, what happens is Noah gets off of the ark. And the very first thing that Noah does is he builds an altar to God. And he begins to offer these sacrifices to God. Uh, David, you'll find times where David offers these, builds these altars to God and worships God. Abraham, right, the father of all the faithful, when God calls him out of what's called the Ur of the Chaldeans, which, which, by the way, was actually ancient Babylon, God calls Abraham says, Abraham, come follow me. I'm going to take you to a brand new country. I'm going to give you a whole new big piece of property. So Abraham comes. The very first thing Abraham does, he enters into the land, into this little town. He calls Bethel. And he changes, or what he does in Bethel, the very first thing is he builds an altar. And he worships God. They're at that altar. You see, the point is this, is that God's people, who are serious about their life, being devoted to God, they go to the altar and are changed. I'll give you another example. We have so many people that are getting married this year. It's unbelievable. Off the charts. We've had more people over the past like month and a half find, we found out that are getting married getting it's than ever before. I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to start like selling out to the highest bidder. Alright, but the reality is, is that all these couples are going to start coming to the altar. Why? What happens at the altar? Really what happens at the altar is something dies. Something dies. I always tell the guys this. I'm like, listen, you're coming down to the altar. She's coming down to the altar. She's expecting you to be like Christ. To lay your life down. To live for her. Every time God does this great move, there's always, it begins by people saying, we will get on our knees before the altar and worship our God. We will lay our lives down. We will die. We will surrender. That's what happens in Ezra. Like, God, you are great. We're not. We need help. You give help. You're powerful. We're powerless. We're stinking afraid. And you control fears, right? We need you. We're desperate for you. We don't know what we're doing. We're refugees in a foreign land. We're all living in tents. We don't know where to go, what to do, but what we do need we need to do, what we do know that we need to do is we need to build an altar to worship you. And we'll begin there. We'll surrender our lives. Say we begin there. And you'll take us from wherever you want us to go from there. So we see not only this priority of worship, the second thing we see is this instruction of worship. It's important to note in verse 2, it points out, it says that they did all this according to the instruction of Moses. You'll see that phrase appear often. They're like, you know, they did this according to the word of God or according to the words of Moses. Um, what's significant to note about that is these people weren't just making this up as they went. I mean, they didn't come back in the land of Israel and be like, huh, how should we worship Jesus? Or how should we worship God today? Uh, let's kill an armadillo and sacrifice that to God. Alright, how about that? You know, they weren't just like making this up as they went. Here's what they were doing. They were like, listen, God has a specific way as to how He demands to be worshipped. we got to get back to that and figure that out. And do it. 
You know that in our culture today. I mean, you all know that. In our culture today, it's, everything's about being PC. Everything's about being tolerant. And I think it's important. We live in, in the United States of America. I think there is a sense we have to recognize that Christians are not Christendom. Our job is not to be here to inflict and enforce our morality upon a sinful, fallen world. It's not our job. Some people think it is. It's not our job. But the reality is, is that what happens is because we live in this culture, it's very easy for us to begin to think, you know, there's lots of paths to God. God's just this big, you know, <laughs> genie in the sky, and all you got to do is just call upon Him in your own particular way, rub the little oil lamp, and something will happen in your life. All right? God will come to you. And so what's happened is the, the most popular form of reduction has just been spiritualism. Right? That's how we've, re, we've reduced it all. Right? Classic example of this is Oprah. All right? All right? She's got millions of people tuning in. I'm not trying to bag on Oprah right now, but I'm just trying to say is that she speaks to millions of people. She's very spiritual, very much so pushes her spirituality, wants people to enjoy the same spirituality that she has. But the reality is, is that within the culture in which we live in, it's very popular to just think, because I'm spiritual, I must be okay. And I want to communicate clearly, don't live like that. Don't think like that, because there is very clear possibility of worshiping God correctly, and that there is a clear possibility of worshiping God incorrectly. And if all we simply do is just sort of show up on the scene and be like, I'll just worship God however I feel, chances are, because we're fallen people, our default mode will formulate a religion that's very comfortable for us. And I'll give you one more clue. That's very centered around whom? Me. Right? I mean, we will build gods. And we will worship God, and we will be spiritual, and we will do these things, but we will do it in such a way where everything sort of places me on this pedestal, and everything makes my life happy. Right? And so, I'll be tolerant as long as you don't interfere with the little altar I've built for myself to be propped upon to be spiritual. So the reality is, if these people came back and said, listen, we've got to build an altar. We've got to worship God. But we can't make this up. We've got to get back to the way that God's ordained it. In the New Testament, the way this works, is a lot of the dietary code and a lot of the laws that the Jews had followed are not adapted over into the church of Gentiles, meaning that if you're here and you're Gentile, which probably most of us are, meaning you're not Jewish, uh, we don't live according to the same rule book and laws per se that they had. Moral laws, dietary, or moral laws, yes, but dietary laws and some of these other laws, we don't live according to those things. But the reality is, is that in Christ, there are certain things that God says, here's how I want you to live. I'll give you an example. Jesus would put it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus' point is pretty clear, stating that if you want to get to God, the path to God is not being spiritual, nor is it being good. The path to God is through me. I am the pathway to God. This is what condemned the, Jew this is what condemned the Jewish leaders. It wasn't because they were tithing you know, cumin and mint and crazy amounts of stuff like that. That's not what brought about the tension between them and Jesus, the fact that brought about the tension between them and Jesus was that they constantly closed their ears and says, we refuse to follow you, Jesus. Jesus would say, if you refuse to follow me, then really what you're doing is you're refusing to follow life. And you're carving out for yourself another path that actually is not a path of life, it's actually a path of death. And in the end, you will discover that. So the reality as we look at this whole concept today as it applies to us, the way that we understand this in terms of instruction, there is a way to worship God that's correct. It's through Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Paying for our penalty. We couldn't pay for it. Jesus took care of it. 
And now He offers life. And He says, you come to Me, I give you life. See, this is why Jesus would say, if you have the Son, you have life. Life is in the Son. If you're here today and you're like, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't like Jesus, then the simple reality I plead with you to somehow reconsider is that Jesus is life. This is not about pushing religion. It's about trying to help you to see life. Someone might be like, are you trying to convert me? Duh. Yes. Yes. It's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to convert you. I want to see I want to see change. I want to see your life change. Here's how I want to see it change. I, all that I want to see is I want to see you stop worshiping lesser gods that are constantly not bringing satisfaction to your soul and will one day, one day lead you to hell. I want to see you leave those gods to worship the true and living God who brings everlasting life, who brings peace in this life, even in the midst of difficulties. I mean, life might not get better, as I've already said, but the fact of the matter is, is you've got the power of God sustaining you, holding you, cleansing you from your sin, removing the defilement of just sin that's in your life, things that you've done in the past, washing you, and standing before God knowing that you're forgiven. And ultimately, the promise of eternal life. Yes, guilty. That's what I want to see. So there is a way to do it right. The last thing I see is this, is the focus of worship. The focus of worship. Take a look at this. Is that this whole concept in verse 3, it says, they, they offer these sacrifices to the Lord. Guys, this whole concept is about setting God in his proper place. That's what they did. They just recognized, God, we've got to put you in the proper place. We have to put you in this proper place to worship you. To live for you in such a way. Otherwise, nothing will sustain us. So I was reading through the book of Acts last night. One of the things that just radically hit me, um, as the church began, they were just a group of people. I mean, they were afraid. They were afraid. They were just, in fact, there's so many parallels between the first like five chapters of the book of Acts and chapter 3. Uh, the book of Acts, it talks about, it starts out like this. is a group of people. They're very afraid because their religious leaders had just killed their rabbi, their teacher, right? the guy that they spent spent past three years with. They just killed Jesus. Now these guys are basically trying to live Judaism with a new light and understanding upon it through Jesus, but Jesus is dead, right? He, he rose again. They, they know that, but the, the, the simple reality is that they're hunted. They're sitting in houses. They're afraid. They got the doors shut, locked, because they don't know if at any moment maybe someone from the religious guard will break down the door, arrest them, take them to jail, and they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, imagine that. Think of that. Think about that. Let's say you're a 32-year-old male here, and you've got two kids. Can you imagine being part of that initial group? You don't, you don't know, but the fact that maybe your trust in Christ might lead you to never seeing your kids again. These guys were afraid. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. But the reality is, is they gathered together. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, there was this power that caused them to realize that God, nothing in this life, even compares to how great you are. So much so that it says, like in uh, chapter 2, again, reiterated chapter 5, that these people, they were gathered together as one. And it says here in Ezra, as one man, as one group. They were one group gathered together that says, listen, whatever your needs are, we're here to help you out. We love God, we love each other, and we are a group of people committed to watching each other's back. Ultimately, because the glory of God is worth it. Can you imagine them watching each other's back because it's like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And the moment you don't scratch my back, I'm out of here. I'm, I, you know, but instead, they're like, listen, I'll watch your back because God is so great and He loves you. I'll love you. 
And so we're in this thing together. You're going to let me down, but that's okay, because I'll forgive you, because Jesus will give me the grace to forgive you. And we'll keep moving on, because God's great. So here's what it says in about chapter 5 of Acts. It says that all these people had all things in common, so much so that if somebody had a need, others would sell what they have to give to those who have need. I want you to think about this. This is so radical. What, what it did to me, it caused me to sit down. And to be honest with you, I go through radical phases in my mind where I just think, this is the way the church is today. The way Calvary slow is today does not satisfy me. And look at the book of Acts. And I just think, here's a group of people. I don't live in an idealistic sense that everything was great, everything was perfect. In reality, these people had radical power, and there was also radical problems. I mean, you start getting into the fact you got people lying, and they're dying, and you know everybody's afraid of them, so some people are not wanting to join the group because they're like, I heard if you go to that church, you get killed. That's not a good church to go to. It's not very secret sensitive. You know, and people aren't going, but at the same time, they're like going boldly as one group to singing songs in the Temple Mount. And something about this, was it was like this unstoppable, unstoppable vehicle that you could not turn away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had a television, someone came to you and says, listen, I, I got some needs, man. I'm hurting right now. I need 50 bucks. Can, can you imagine actually saying... I don't have any money, but I got a television I don't really need. I'm going to sell that. Craigslist. As soon as I get the cash, I'll get to you. Guys, that hit me. I don't live like that. I don't live like that. I just think that that's the gospel. That's this group of people that say, listen, we are committed to this. We are committed to each other. We are committed to serving one another to the point of saying, what's more important is not my television, not my comfort, not goods that I have in my house, or services that beam into my house, but the glory of God seen through His people. As one body, we move forward as this unstoppable force communicating the greatness and the glory of God. Not in word only, but in this way in which we love each other. This way in which we say, I will watch your back. And yet I wonder how many of us in the American church are just, just not wired like that. We instead think of church more in the sense where it's like, it's about this comfort for me. But what, what, if I, what if I were to say next week? We're not doing church at 10.30 anymore. In fact, we're not even going to have children's service anymore. Right? We're just going to meet as one big body out in the park, worship God, proclaim His name, preach the Word, and you're going to have to just watch your kid. I wonder how many people would be like, ah, not my church anymore. I mean, what, what if we were to say one Sunday, I'm not preaching for the next three weeks. I want all of you to just break up in your little neighborhoods. Find out who lives in your neighborhood. We're going to find gifted men of God who know how to speak God's word. They're going to meet in the house. They're going to teach you. We're going to find people who know how to play five chords on a guitar. Their voice might stink. But you know what? They love Jesus. And they're going to lead a few songs. I wonder how many people will be like, "Mm, I'll find another church. Honestly, guys, I just really don't even care about numbers. I don't care about building this thing. I don't care about even the building that God's just blessed us with. I really don't care. It's a tool. Why do I care about Sunday mornings? The reason why I care about it is because for some unknown reason, God keeps bringing people here. He says, love them. Share the gospel with them. Worship together as a body. Serve one another. Love one another. Do life with one another. Be community with one another. 
I would rather have a church of 100 people that just say, all I care about is God getting his glory. You know if that means me making radical adjustments in my life, selling some things to help other people out, to love those that are in need, taking care of each other, watching each other's back. That's the church I want to be a part of. I love you guys. I, I, I believe God has so many great things for this body. So many great things for this body. But it has to begin in an attitude in which we say, listen, what's most important is that altar. I build that altar and I worship the living God. Everything else pales in comparison. Everything else is insignificant. Everything. I mean, everything. I mean, if I were to just like for the next six months say, you know, we're just going to do worship a cappella, and I'm leading it. <laughs> you haven't heard me sing, you know? I know I'd scare people away, but the reality is that what matters is God's glory, and that we as a body saying, I'm just worshiping, love Him, and repair the altar broken. Repair the altar of personal worship. Repair the altar of family worship. If the family is broken down, men, if for whatever reason in your family you can't even sit at the dinner table and share the gospel of Christ with your kids because you're embarrassed, something's got to change. Something has to change. We're going to have Chris coming up. He's going to lead us in a few songs of worship. We're going to close. But what I want to do is I want to finish with some thoughts here. The reality is God knows what we're going through. I mean, He does. He knows already what we're dealing with. <laughs> some of you in your heart, you're just like, I really love my computer way more than God. I really I don't want to go to heaven today. If I had a choice of either going to heaven or starting my new job on Monday, I'd rather start my new job on Monday. I'm really excited about that. Or, you know, some of you, as I said earlier, a lot of you guys are getting married. Some of you, you know, if the thought is, I don't, I don't want to go see Jesus face to face yet. I'd rather get married and just taste that a little bit. I have a kid and just experience that for a little season. I'm not, you know what? God knows that. And the best thing that we can do in our hearts is just say, Lord, in all honesty, I love other things over you. I love my kids over you. I love my job more than you. I love myself more than you, God. I am I'm a fearful person. I'm afraid people are going to think less of me. I love my reputation more than I love your ways. You know, God already knows that. Do you know that? This is, this is to me the most amazing freeing reality. Is God already knows this about you. It's not like God's like, you're kidding. I had no idea. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. All right? Thank you. Let me pat you on the back. You're just such a great person. You know, none of it's a shock to God. You know who we kid is? We kid ourselves. We think that just by keeping the silent on it, nothing's going to change. Guys, the thing that brings about transformation in our lives is that altar that just says, Lord, I will worship you. I will cast my life down before you. I will count my life as nothing. The book of Revelation talks about there's going to come a day when Jesus will see face to face. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant picture where all of these saints, I think, that have gone before have this unbelievable crowns. I mean, think about a crown with jewels and like worth more than anything you can imagine. These people take these crowns and they put them before the feet of the Lamb of God. They say, Lord, nothing, not even all the jewels, all the glory, 
all the honor in this world is worth to be compared to your beauty. Guys, I want you to think about your altars in your life. You're going to worship. You're going to sing some songs to the Lord. In fact, I don't, we're not even doing an offering right now. If you got money you want to give, put it in the donation box. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to be interrupted. I want us to think, to pray, to consider this. Deal with this issue of altars in your life. Jesus, we thank you. You laid your life down. And now we want to lay our lives down. We want to destroy any false gods that have been placed before you. We want to confess them. Lord, that we have loved other things more than you. We just want to lay those at your feet. Lord, we want to repair the altar. We want to first be worshipers of you. Bring us back to the place of recognizing your infinite beauty, your infinite greatness, before any type of concept of mission to even apply to our lives. Help us, Father.